From MTMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. How do you keep getting better? And what can you do to make yourself better? I think there's a lot of people out there who have the capability to do exactly what I've done about things they're passionate about, whether it's quality related or serving as a a patient representative in some way or patient champion. Uh, There's just so many aspects of what you can do that, that helps you. That's Peter Valenzuela on education and innovation in the workplace. We'll also talk to Peter about the recent Northern California fires that evacuated his home campus, the benefits of lifelong education, and his reputation as the Dilbert of healthcare. But first, a word from our sponsors. Over the last decade, value-based care has emerged as a compelling alternative to traditional reimbursement models in primary care. While challenging, this model has proven to be profitable to those who prepare for it. Humana, one of the nation's largest healthcare providers, has teamed up with researchers at MGMA to bring you a new report providing data, case studies, and advice on how to get a jump on the transition. It also takes a closer look at the impact of value-based models on your primary care environment and your potential ROI. To check out the report, visit mgma.com slash VBC report, as in value-based care report. It's easy to fill off course when managing the complexities of a medical practice's revenue cycle. But we've got your solution. MGMA's Book of the Month, Revenue Cycle Management, Don't Get Lost in the Financial Maze by Taya Moheiser and Kim Tolliver. Whether you're new to revenue cycle management or a seasoned professional, the concepts covered in this primer will help your practice keep it all straight and stay on the pathway to success. To purchase or preview Revenue Cycle Management, don't get lost in the financial maze. Visit mgma.com RCM. Serving as the chief medical officer for one of Northern California's major medical employers is no easy task. Throw in the region's heightened risk of wildfires, and it can be a Herculean task. Today's guest, Peter Valenzuela is all too familiar with this exact situation. Over the course of six short years, Peter has helped guide his medical group through multiple disasters, including a recent close call that initially pushed back this very interview. Peter, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Now, as you know, we were going to have you on the show several weeks ago. We were going to talk about your career in healthcare. We were even going to touch on the 2017 fires that hit your area and hit uh, Sutter Health. We were not able to do that because you contacted me and said the fires had come back. You had uh, a new fire rolling through your area. Um, So I want to first just touch base with you on that. How are things going for you guys? Are you back safe and sound? Yes, thanks for asking, Daniel. Yeah, we we got back into our offices um, on Monday. So um, <clears throat> we did have to shut down our, our services for about a week as we were battling the Kincaid fire, um, which uh, burned about 120 square miles of, of uh, uh, ground out here in Northern California. Right. I, I was trying to keep up with it through the regular news, but I couldn't get updates just on you guys. Did you actually evacuate? What what all happened there? Yes, we did. Actually, we learned quite a bit from the fires in 2017. And so 
Um, the, the sheriff's department and others were very um, conservative with this fire. In fact, we were given evacuation warnings early this time, which uh, was done by zones of the community. And so the zone one, which was closest to the fire, was evacuated uh, almost immediately and others were on, you know, put on watch and we were slowly uh, kind of tiered out of the community. Uh, they did this mostly because the uh, they anticipated heavy traffic during evacuation, which they learned after the fires in 2017. So this was a lot more controlled. And I think that the outcomes were a lot better <clears throat> because <clears throat> so this time they had learned from the previous fire and they were more aggressive with the evacuations and the outcomes were a lot better. The firemen, they had thousands of additional firemen that came up and, and they were able to prevent the fire from jumping over the highway, which would have been really decimated our community. Mm -hmm. What do you do in that situation then? Do you go work remotely? Do you go into a different location? What's your plan of action? Yeah, so with the medical group, we set up an incident command in Novato, which is about um, 35 miles south of our community. And we had set it up at the hospital there. And um, what we do initially is our first point uh, is to make sure that all of our staff and our physicians and clinicians are safe. So we have a a phone tree that we use to identify everybody and and so the first thing we do is identify the people and make sure everybody's safe then the second thing we do is assess our clinics to see what if any facilities we have that are operable uh, operational and out of the uh, warning area unfortunately this go around we didn't have any care centers or a hospital that was out of the fire zone so we were out of commission for about a, a week and we tried to set up a couple of care centers in Novato uh, for those patients that needed urgent care. So that was, you know, priority one is our staff and our clinicians. Priority two is seeing what care centers we can use. And priority three was triaging our patients to, for those that might need more emergent care, like our oncology patients and our OB patients and uh, uh, patients that are post-op or recently hospitalized. Uh, so that was kind of the way that we focused on it. Sure. Now, having already been through the other fire in 2017, uh, wanted to ask you about that. How did that help you better prepare for this fire? Well, <clears throat> I think in the first fire, we, uh, we really didn't have even the point of contacts updated so that during that fire, everybody kind of scattered about to try to take care of themselves and their families. And, and the first time we really struggled to make sure that we could identify all of our staff and and of all, all of our physicians to make sure they were safe. After that first fire, we set up a, um, a document where we added all of our staff, all of our physicians, and on the medical group side, my responsibility was physicians and clinicians. And, and I actually used a texting-based app, which is a, an application where I could actually message all of our physicians and clinicians in one group setting to make sure they were doing okay, and I could keep them up to date on what was going on what care centers were available and which patients we were triaging. So the communication was a lot more streamlined the second time around. So just one final question on that side of it, having been through two of these now, what are some best practices and some first steps that you would want to share with our audience? Yeah, I would say best practices, if you don't already, is make sure that you have your uh, staffs, um, contact number and emergency contact number as well as even address if they if they can provide that for you because one of the things that we were able to do was actually geolocate 
and geoposition our staff and our clinicians based on their addresses on a map that would show how far they were from the from the fire zone and other areas so we can we could anticipate who was going to be impacted more so than others mm-hmm. so i would say have your contact uh, list updated also if you don't have a a handbook or a crisis or disaster plan you should start working on one immediately because whether it's a fire or a hurricane or a power outage or a tornado there's all kinds of extremes that you could experience and in this case where we were we had the fire then we had the power outage and then we had the gas that was turned on so we even had to triage our care centers to say are they in the evacuation zone if not do they have power if they do have power do they have gas and so even those are different tiers that you have to consider mm-hmm. now we jumped ahead and, and talked about this fire because it was so immediate and something pressing to you and your staff and the patients and again we're just we're glad all of you are safe and you're you're back uh, how just wondering how close did the fires get to your location well it was probably uh, a few exits uh, north of us so it was pretty close wow yeah definitely well glad you guys are all safe and uh want to go on and talk to you about some other things that you're involved with uh, just for our audience. Let them know you're currently the chief medical officer of Sutter Health. I was doing some research on that, at least the most recent information I have. It's the third largest employer in Sonoma County. Um, want to talk about your role there. Uh, you've been there, it looks like a little bit over six years. Um, what was your primary goal when you started with Sutter and, and what has that messaging been to your team? Sure, sure, that's a great question. So I, you know, in my role as chief medical officer, I'm responsible for oversight of all issues related to the financial and medical group operations, as well as the clinical and service quality efforts here in Sonoma County. And we have about 125 multi-specialty physicians and clinicians in our group. We take care of about 120,000 patients as part of our medical group. And when I was first hired here, it was, you know, just like with any company, you know, if, if you've ever read The First 90 Days, which is a book that I mm-hmm. highly recommend, it, it, it asks you to, to evaluate whether an organization is a startup, a turnaround, a realignment, or a sustaining organization. And I was brought in more because they needed a realignment. And they had uh, really kind of grown rapidly acquiring physicians, but they hadn't developed a group culture yet. And they had to build a, an infrastructure of uh, leadership as well as committees that would help to, the organization move forward. So that was kind of my main job. What did you find was the biggest challenge when you got started then? So you said there was a rapid merger acquisition plan in place. And we've talked about that with a lot of experts. You can You can grow and then you find, wow, how do we fit all this together? So... What did you do at that point then? What were you doing to bring all these various teams together so you could at least adopt some similar thought processes and some similar strategies? Yeah, so when I first came in, I kind of spent the first 90 days doing an assessment and and I broke it up into four major categories. I had a leadership questionnaire that I sent out to the um, some of the medical group leaders as well as the foundational leaders from operations. I had a document review where I looked at all the charters and bylaws, policies and procedures, uh, the structure, the financials, um, 
provider performance and other aspects like that that I could find charts on. I did uh, uh, conversations and interviews with other people that might not have been leaders but had a lot of insight to the organization. And finally, I went and visited every care center and clinic, and I just kind of did direct observations. I sat in the waiting room. I walked through the back. I talked to the staff and looked at what was on the walls and, and what they had to kind of get a feel for what they were like. Then based on that assessment, I broke up the work into um, six major categories. And this was based on some of the readings I'd done with Camden, um, GE Camden now, but they kind of had a, 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 a key components of highly functioning medical groups where they broke up um, the core aspects of being a high functioning medical group into effective governance and management structure, strong physician administration leadership, aligned incentives, patient-oriented operating systems, financial processes and systems to maximize revenue, and, and, and finally, quality management and control. So I put together an assessment and I, I broke those categories down and I gave our board of directors my findings based on each category. And then I prioritized them into um, three major areas. What was the most critical step? What were the most crucial steps? And then what were continuous steps that we were doing pretty well? After you did the assessment then, what did you do then? What did you relay to the team? Because you had assessed culture. You'd brought all these different ones in. Did you, did you have an idea of the culture you wanted it to be? Or did you help that evolve from what was existing? Well, I kind of helped it evolve from what was existing. And I actually, one of the things that I did when I first joined here was develop what we call the Unified Well-Being and Culture Plan. And it was really targeting the group to get to know, um, you know, each of the physicians and colleagues to get to know each other on a personal level. You know, when I first got here, um, a lot of the physicians had been acquisitions from the community, but they really didn't know our primary care physicians that well. And a lot of our primary care physicians didn't understand um, that the specialists needed their referrals and were receiving referrals from outside of the medical group and what it would take to make to be successful. So we really worked on getting our physicians to know one another. We developed a well-being plan also because we were dealing with people that are already starting to feel burned out. This is 2013, 2014. And we broke up our well-being plan into um, uh, personal components, um, professional components, and social components. And we had categories for each of those that we put into place. And it was really successful for us. When I first joined here, we do the uh, a provider satisfaction survey based on national benchmarks annually. And when I got here, our leadership and communication was in the below the 20th percentile and our collegiality and uh, morale were also below the 20th percentile. And, and as of recently, our leadership and communication are now hovering in the 80th to 90th percentile. Our collegiality scores are in the 75th percentile. And so we're seeing dramatic improvement. And, and we've, it's obviously shown as well with our uh, physician productivity and performance metrics, as well as our quality and patient satisfaction, satisfaction metrics. Are, are there specific things you can point to? I mean, that's dramatic growth. That's huge turnaround. So I know getting them to communicate is one of those things, but gosh, it seems like there's got to be something else going on there that uh, our <laughs> listeners would want to know so they could adopt it to their own practices. Yeah, you know, it, it was a very, it was a, a, a thorough plan that we did. And, you know, for example, under uh, pers personal well-being, we looked at uh, 
making sure that our uh, physicians had mentors, that they were onboarded correctly, that they were kind of exposed to the community. From a professional standpoint, we started offering CME through our specialists to our primary care docs. We developed EPIC training. Uh, we also uh, had social aspects where we developed a significant others group so we could incorporate the spouses and significant others. Um, going back to the, the personal aspects, we developed a um, medical missions policy where any of our physicians that wanted to go uh, provide medical care uh, overseas or elsewhere, the medical group would fund up to $2,500 of their trip. In response, we'd ask them to present at our all group meeting on where it was they went and how it benefited them. Uh, we, developed a, we developed a charitable contributions policy where any of our physicians that, that ha, had an interest in uh, supporting a nonprofit, the medical group would fund up to $2,500 in their name. Uh, so it was really getting to the core of, of caring about each other, caring about our community, and seeing how we could partner to do better. Uh, there's more to this, obviously, but I'm happy to share with you uh, or email you if you'd like. But th that's kind of how we started moving forward. Yeah. We in getting everybody on board, were the meetings broken up or the, I don't want to call them meetings then, but the training, um, were these available through video, through audio? Were they all face-to-face -face meetings? How did you get that? Yeah, it was, it was really face-to-face -face meetings. You know, mm -hmm. I think most, most organizations always struggle on what's the best communication for their people. And and you're always going to have the people that say, email me, and you'll have others that say, I want it done in person. And you'll have others that say, text it to me. You'll have others that say, put it on a YouTube. And we found for us, you know, given the size of our group, doing it in person was the most effective. Okay. And then last thing, because this is a big group we're talking about. Um, did you have the whole team in there together, or did you break those up into smaller groups so you could communicate, you know, in more intimate settings like that? Yeah, well, we had a formal. Well, we still have a formal well-being committee that were made up of physicians and clinician representatives that uh, kind of helped put this plan together, and I think they kind of helped champion it, uh, which also helped us. But you know, there's some things you can do that are as easy as as icebreakers. You know, we have an all-group meeting every other month, and we tend to have 75 to 80 percent of our medical group uh, attended. One of the first things we started doing because a lot of physicians didn't know each other is we started assigning them to seats. So we'd have specialists sitting with primary care and vice versa. And then we had an activity where we would have each of them um, at the, spend a few minutes at the table answering a question at the center of the table, which is usually an icebreaker. We had things like, you know, what's the most interesting non-medical job you've ever had? And then we spent time at the all-group meeting going table to table, having the uh, best response at the table stand up and say what it is, just really to familiarize our physicians with one another. And then as a reward, we'd give the, the person with the best response at the table a bottle of wine. You know, it's Sonoma County, so everything's got <laughs> wine attached to it. Exactly. <laughs> but it really helped break the ice, and it was funny. After a few months, you started seeing people no longer just sitting with their specialties. They started sitting with the other docs. And, and that really was the beginning of, of bending that curve around the culture and how we communicate with each other when we started seeing improvements in our referrals because our primary care, one of the things we tracked is, is uh, how often our primary care docs referred internally to our specialists and how often they referred externally. And the number of internal referrals really just kind of skyrocketed for us in the first two years. Wow, that's great. Now, I had mentioned earlier, you've been at Sutter for more than six years now. So when you got there, did you break it down to 
an immediate strategy, a five-year plan, a 10-year plan? How did you break that out? Because you have crossed that five-year plan if you did have one. Curious what your plans are now. Yeah, yeah, we actually, that was a, it was a three-year plan that we were looking at building early on. Since then, we've had several iterations. We now have a strategy committee that didn't used to exist before. And that strategy committee has helped to um, inform our future strategies. So we kind of are breaking up our strat- strategic plans into uh, three-year plans as we go. Because, you know, healthcare is always so dynamic. If you do a five to 10, there's so many things that can change in between there. And so we try to be a little bit more flexible with a, more of a three-year plan. So where are you now with your three-year plan? You had said early you wanted to get that communication better. You wanted to create mm-hmm. better leaders, get the culture uh, figured out. So where are you in this current three-year cycle? Well, in the current three-year cycle, we've we've achieved the, the core aspects that we had. And, I, and just to let you know, I did put together a work plan for the first three years. Um, and it's categorized by category, uh, by uh, the six pillars that I mentioned earlier and the partners that I'd have to work with to make it happen. And we were able to achieve pretty much all of those targets that we set out for in those first three years, and that gave us momentum for the next. And, you know, right now we're focused on the same thing that most organizations are. We're focusing on the provider experience. We're focusing on the patient experience. And then the last pillar that we're focusing on is growth, not just in patient lives but in the medical group because, you know, Recruitment seems to be a challenge, and, and for us, it's been more so over the last few years since the fires because it it seemed to scare off candidates who would otherwise have considered moving here. Mm-hmm. Now, you had received your MD, if I've got it right, in 1998. You went back to school uh, to get your. Boy, you're showing my age now. Well, hey. <laughs> I'm kidding. Just, it's your experience that we're talking about. Sure. <laughs> I didn't say how old you are when you started. You could have been one of no, a prodigy, you, you know, in your no. teen years. <laughs> I'm um, kidding. Oh, no, it's good. And then you received your MBA in healthcare in 2005. Just wanted to talk to you about that, what the MBA helped you do, how it helped you become a better leader, and how you use that to realize a lot of these goals at Sutter? Sure, sure. That's a great question. You know, I when I trained in, in medical school and residency, we really didn't learn a lot about the business aspects of healthcare. And after I graduated, I, I went back home to my hometown in West Texas, in case you don't notice a drawl. That's oh, why I hear it. I hear it. Yeah. I'm from Texas, <laughs> born and raised. And uh, you know, I was working in a in a clinic, and and you know, it was really difficult for me to understand the nuances of you know everything from how the coding affects your your bottom line to how the throughput throughput affects your patient satisfaction as well as your efficiencies. And you know, one day I was sitting in my office waiting for a patient to be roomed, and I kind of sat in my office for a while. And when I finally got into the exam room, the patient said, Doc, you know, I've been waiting for 45 minutes to see you. And I remember thinking, well, I haven't been busy. I've been waiting for you to get roomed. Right. And it really was the trigger for me to say, I need to go off and learn how to do these things better. How do we make our clinics more operational and efficient? And, and how do we improve our bottom line? And how do we make sure our patients are getting the quality care they deserve and satisfied with what we do? And I... I found an executive MBA program at Auburn University that, that was for physicians. And it, it worked for me because I was already in private practice. It was a two-year program that 
was a hybrid model. So every three months you'd fly to Auburn and spend about a week there with other physicians and in the classroom learning about the business aspects. And then in between that, you had homework and online stuff that you would do. And I, I just, I learned so much about the business side of healthcare. It really kind of, it, it lit a spark in me because I kept thinking, you know, other physicians should learn this. And if they don't, maybe I can help them in mm-hmm. some way. Did they uh, force you to yell War Eagle while you were there? <laughs> yeah, they did. War Eagle, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was in Birmingham for 15 years, so I was in between uh, Roll Tide and War Eagle. I heard oh, it um, from everybody oh. I met. So. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk to, to you about some other education that you, you uh, have adopted over the years. You've gone back. And let me see if I have this right. You've, you've received certification in innovation, something called the Innovator's Method and Innovator's DNA. Um, tell us about that. That was something new to me. I had not heard about that. What was that program? Sure. Yeah, it's actually a really great program. It was based on uh, Clayton Christensen's book of Innovator's DNA, uh, where they studied you know, hundreds of executives from all industries to find out what it was that made those organizations that just continue to excel year after year um, do so well and, and what made other organizations not not hang around very long. And, you know, I, I really feel like in healthcare, you know, we, we do a lot of incremental innovation, which is basically just kind of um, enhancing a current process or procedure, but we don't do a lot of new to market or breakthrough innovation. And I, for me, doing this course and getting certified was really to look at how do we solve the problems in healthcare with a different lens, and and how do we apply cre- creativity to healthcare and learn from innovative companies outside of our industry. You know, obviously, we're not going to solve all of our problems just this way, but we can definitely try to question what they're doing well and, and try to network with others and experiment in a different way so that we can solve some of the problems that we're dealing with. For someone who might be interested, what is this program like? What's the time commitment and the sure. you know, mental commitment to getting through that program? Well, this program was a little abbreviated, so it was good. It's a week-long program um, from eight to five where you go in and, and you're exposed to what it takes to be creative as an individual and then also how you can get organizations or groups of people within an organization to start using innovative methods and, and technologies to solve problems. And, you know, I, I really like the individual growth component because most people think that you're either creative or you're not, that it's inherent and it's genetic and, and there's creative people and there aren't. And they've done a lot of studies and that's probably the reason that I like this course because it's very science-based. They've done a lot of studies that show that really only a third of your genetics um, comprises to creativity. So, you know, it's really a small component. The other two thirds you can learn. You can acquire that knowledge and you can apply it in a different way. And that's what the goal of this is, is to get people to understand that um, it's not just an inherent thing. You can, you can be trained in it and learn how to solve problems differently. What innovation in healthcare that you've been involved with are you most proud of? That's a tough one. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I can tell you we actually have one net right now within our medical group that's uh, part of our design and innovation team at Sutter Health overall, and it's basically uh, developing a, a clinic for that top 5% of the Medicare population that eats up the majority of the resources and finding a way to care for them on the ambulatory side 
and partnering with their caregivers to to take care of those patients so that they don't end up in the ER, they don't end up in the hospital or in a nursing home. And we've been really fortunate to, you know, we just launched that this year and we're already starting to see positive outcomes with decreased emergency room visits and, and other things like that. So walk us through that program then. How did the genesis of it, you know, come about and then how did you guys implement it? So, you know, I was actually, I'm on the, uh, insurance board for Sutter Health and I was talking to the CEO because just like most organizations Sutter's looking to develop a Medicare Advantage plan to take care of that uh, older population through an HMO type model and one of the things he said is you know Peter I don't think we've really solved how to take care of the the high utilizers the patients that that need more help he said and if we launch a product and haven't really solved that problem then we're going to be in bad shape because they, they take up a significant portion of the resources. And so I had actually interviewed uh, a geriatrician a few years ago who was working at a program for all-inclusive care for the elderly in San Francisco. And she's a dynamite physician who's, you know, went and studied and, and uh, uh, I believe she went to Switzerland to study the healthcare system over there and caring for the elderly population. She had an MPH. And just, you know, when I interviewed her at the time, we did not have a position that that felt like it was something that resonated with her and i told the the ceo of the insurance plan i i think i've got somebody that we can work with that'll help us develop a model on the ambulatory side to care for that population so that when we do eventually launch our insurance plan we'll have at least some type of a model uh, care center for other organizations to use to make you know so they can be successful okay now, you were talking about innovation and creativity earlier, how that comes about, how much of it is DNA, uh, you know, the uh, nature side, and then how much is the nurture side. But you've done something that's been very creative, very <laughs> artistic. Uh, you're the creator of Doc Related. It's a web com- comic that takes a satirical look at the healthcare world. Some people have compared it to the sort of the Dilbert of the healthcare world. So how in the world did that come about? Have you always, <laughs> <laughs> have you always yeah. been an artist or did well, that come about just from this innovation uh, webinar you know, I, that you went through? No, I've actually, I've always liked to draw. You know, I've always, you know, in fact, growing up, I always thought I was going to be an architect. I just love drawing houses and just seeing what's out there. And, you know, um, also, you know, cartoon characters and others were something that I enjoyed drawing growing up and, and, uh, you know, circumstances changed when I was in high school. My mother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and I got exposed to the healthcare arena and kind of decided I was going to wanted to be a physician, but I always kind of drew here and there. It's funny because, uh, you know, growing up, I drew a lot of houses, and I, you know, I've just always drawn odd shaped houses and tried to draw unique things. And, you know, one day I was showing my wife some of my sketches and drawings and, uh, I, she looked through them and I remember asking, I said, so what'd you think? What do you think? You know, any of these look like they could be good. And, and my wife looks at me and she says, you know what? It's a really good, I, I'm really glad you decided to go into healthcare. <laughs> 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 so I don't think I'd have had a career as an artist or an architect, but you know, I still like to draw. And, and one day I was sitting in a conference and it was really interesting. It was some national conference somewhere. I won't speak of the specifics, but, uh, I was sitting next to another physician and they were talking about metrics that they use for um, checking how, how they're doing as an organization, the presenter was. And, 
and basically he had you know these provider satisfaction metrics up there and and they was talking about the response rates to the provider satisfaction metrics and somebody asked him so what do you do with the results you know how do you how do you make it better and they said well no no we're we're just trying to get the response rates up we're not really working on making the solutions any better we just want more people to respond and and I thought, you know, what good is a provider satisfaction survey if you're not actually going to use the feedback to make things better? If, if your metric is based just on response rate, those are really misaligned incentives. And unfortunately, a lot of organizations have misaligned incentives in healthcare today. And I leaned over to a buddy of mine that was next to me and I said, man, you can't. These sound like comic strips. I said, you, you just you can't even, you know, these are comical, you know, the satire. Right. And so it actually was what launched it. And it's been a couple of years and I've done, I don't know, 60 or 70 comics now. And, and you know, each time I do, it's it's been good for me because it's a way that I deal with um, the stressors of practicing healthcare given the new regulations and policies and, you know, the, the restrictions that we have now. And I get so much feedback from other people that are saying, you know, they'll, they'll email me or send me a message saying, man, you are, you're speaking my language or, I feel like you were just in my clinic last week because that's exactly what happened to me. And so it's it's been really kind of a um, inspiring me uh, inspiring thing for me to do to to make myself feel better, but also help other people understand that they're not alone. Right. That healthcare, as we know, I mean it's a it's a heavy topic. People are there uh, often because uh, they're not well and they want to get better. And 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 there are at times bad outcomes and a lot of the what gets covered is a lot of the stress and and uh, the regulations and all the uh, overpricing and other issues that hit it and it looks like there are people like yourself uh, you may know z dog who's taking oh yeah zubin's a buddy of mine yeah (laughs) so he's taken healthcare in another direction and done rap parodies of of healthcare Mm -hmm. issues you've got your creative outlet where you've develop comic strips. I think that's a great way to look at it. How did the ideas, you, you explained one of the ideas that came to you. Now that you have the pressure of creating the next one and the next one and the next one, what do you do? I mean, do you have a set schedule of when you create the next one? Walk us through that process. Yeah, so for me, I try to have a comic out every two weeks. And uh, I have different categories for the comics. Uh, it's the electronic health record, there's um, communication, there's uh, regulations, there's patient satisfaction, there's provider satisfaction, um, and then there's kind of administration. So I have several categories that I look at. And uh, you know, a lot of it is based on previous experiences I've had or I've had other people talk to me about. Um, but really, they, they just kind of, I've been you know in healthcare for almost 20 years now, and I've got so much memory of things that happen that I'm never short on a comic. <laughs> in right. fact, I've probably got, I probably got about five or six scripts right now that I haven't created the comics for, just kind of waiting. And that's my goal is inspiration happens anywhere. You can be sitting in a, in a committee meeting, you can be um, in front of a patient, you can be working on your medical records, or, you know, you could just be reading the paper on what's going on and, you know, what new regulation or policy or, insurance component is out there that you're going to have to comply with. And that's kind of what I use as my 
my uh, resources. Right. So when you're doodling in a meeting, you're actually working. You're <laughs> you're actually creating something. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I've you know it triggers different parts of my brain, and I, I'm sure. sure it happens to a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned that your wife was an early critic. Is she uh, warmed up to your uh, comic strips now, or is she still your worst critic there? <laughs> <laughs> no, she's great. You know, she's always been supportive of me. She, we've been married 20 years, and she's just been that person. And, and she gave me the, you know, she's kind of motivated me to say, keep doing it. You know, if there's something that's helping you, then keep doing it. That's great. So do you work completely in a vacuum, or do you have either her or other people that you bounce the maybe a first draft off of i'm curious how that process is no you know it's funny that you said that i actually have somebody now that i do the scripting a lot and like i said i've got a lot of you know i've got a few that i haven't put together yet i have someone that where i can do the scripting and do the background and do the panels and he will draw some of those some of my characters for me in a much you know a lot faster way in a more efficient way so from time to time, I'll reach out to him to help me when, whenever I'm starting to get backed up or, or have realized that I'd, I'd prefer his style to mine for a certain comic. Okay. Now, you had mentioned many of those strips are based on real events. I'm just curious, are they are your characters based on real people? Are you one of the characters in there? <laughs> I get that a lot. You know, the characters are actually an amalgamation of different physicians and clinicians and administrators I've worked with. So I cannot say that any one person is, is one individual, but mm -hmm. uh, they are based on actual people. Uh, have your patients seen these comic strips? I'm, I'm curious, are they up on your walls where you work or anything mm -hmm. like that? I know that you may not see patients yourself anymore. I'm not, tell us about that. So yeah, so I still see patients. In fact, I've got clinic this afternoon, okay. but I'm I'm at the point now and as an administrator where I'm seeing patients maybe between 10 to 20% uh, of the time a week. It just depends on my schedule. Um, but I don't I don't really speak about my comics very much to to patients. Um, uh, it's not something that I have on my wall or anything at work. It's just more of a a website that I have that I share on social media from time to time. Okay. Well, I wanted to ask you a final question then. You've had such an interesting career in healthcare um, and you've, you've really embraced the idea of that business of healthcare, both from a strategic point and from a bottom line standpoint, but you've also been able to integrate your, your you know, creative side as well. So I wanted to give you a moment here to, to share with our audience any thoughts if, if they're out there listening and they might feel thwarted in one way or another in their career, whether it's on their career track or maybe in sideline side artistic endeavors, what kind of advice would you give them? Yeah, I, I would say never stop learning. I think that you know a lot of physicians, a lot of administrators, they have an end goal of, you know, once I go through college and once I go through uh, business school or, or get my master's, this is the position I'm going to be. And that's kind of the end game for me. Uh, for me, it's really a matter of how do you keep getting better and what can you do to make yourself better? And in my case, I've, I've, you know, I like to draw, so I've kind of done this. And I, I also like looking at creative solutions to problems. So I went off and got certified. I wanted to understand the business aspects of healthcare, so I got an MBA. I think there's a lot of people out there who have the capability to do exactly what I've done about things they're passionate about, whether it's quality related or serving as a 
a, a patient representative in some way or a patient champion. Uh, there's just so many aspects of what you can do that, that helps you. For me, the, the drawing helps to alleviate the stress of my regular day-to-day job. And that's the other feedback I would have is for people who may not have um, something that they enjoy doing outside of work, it's, it's really starting to ask themselves, what do you like to do when you're not at work? Because without that balance of work and personal life, it's really going to cause extreme exhaustion and fatigue. Peter Valenzuela, Chief Medical Officer for Sutter Medical Group of the Redwoods, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Daniel. Appreciate you having me on today. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest, Peter Valenzuela. Find more of Peter's comics on his website or Twitter by searching for Doc Related. Also, don't forget to check out MGMA's Book of the Month, Revenue Cycle Management, Don't Get Lost in the Financial Maze by Kim Tolliver and Taya Moheiser. To purchase or preview the book, visit mgma.com rcm. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing from listeners about the show. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com or find me on Twitter at mgmadaniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Rob Ketchum, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.